Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thanks for listening to The Next Track podcast. You know, if you like the show, it'd be great if you could help spread the word with your ratings, reviews, and recommendations. Many thanks. Before we get rolling, we have some follow-up information regarding last week's episode about the future of streaming. We talked about Sirius XM. And while we mostly touched on content, we didn't really mention any specifics about sound quality. Apparently, a large percentage of users report poor sound quality with SiriusXM. Based on what we could find, talk stations on SiriusXM can be as low as 40 to 48 kilobytes per second. Music stations are in the 64 kbps range. So if you're talking sound quality, that is subpar, but perhaps tolerable, slightly better than a, uh, a good AM broadcast signal less than or as good as an FM signal. So if you are considering SiriusXM and you're concerned about sound quality, be sure to try it out first. Your reception, as it were, may vary. Hey, Doug, have you ever bought a bootleg record? I'm sure I spent many hours pouring through the bootlegs and import sections at uh, various record stores over the years. Not so much recently because um, you, you can find a lot of official uh, fan releases on YouTube nowadays, but... I'd always be on the lookout for bootlegs. I like live albums anyway. And, you know, it's surprising, considering how into recording that I am, that I never actually bootlegged a tape recorder into a show to record it. So I've never done any unauthorized recordings, nor have I been escorted out of a live show attempting it. Well, that's good. We got a couple of emails from listeners who were curious about bootlegs and taping and trading and even BitTorrent. So I thought it would be a good topic for us to discuss on this week's show. Bootlegs are actually interesting. They, they go back to pretty much the dawn of time, at least as far as, you know, printed books are concerned and then later music. I don't know exactly when bootlegs began, but it's well before Shakespeare's time, which is the late 16th, early 17th century. And his plays were widely bootlegged. But it became relatively common in the 19th century. There was no copyright agreement between the United States and England. So if you were an American author, your books would be bootlegged in the UK. And if you were a British author, your books would be bootlegged over here. So Charles Dickens famously came to the U.S. on a speaking tour, and he was a, a very strong activist for copyright reform. In fact, he's one of the people who brought copyright reform into the sort of zeitgeist at the time. I, I know for a fact one of my favorite authors is Henry James, and he often railed against the problems of copyright in the U.K. Uh, for instance, he wrote, uh, I believe it was 1878 when he wrote Daisy Miller, which turned out to be his most popular Text. It's a short novel, a long novella, whatever, but most popular text published as, as a single text. And he earned hardly anything on it because it got immediately bootlegged in England before he could set up an agreement with the publisher over there. So what happened during this period, sort of late 19th, early 20th century, was that writers would set up publishing contracts on both sides of the Atlantic. So there would be protection for the UK publisher in the UK and there'd be protection for the American publisher in the U.S. But if they didn't do it at the same time, then they lost out. So bootlegs in music go back a long time, too. And, you know, we were researching this show, we looked up, and probably the best-known popular music bootleg is the one that's called Great White Wonder, which was an early release of Bob Dylan's Basement Tapes. Dylan recorded these with the band in Woodstock after his 
motorcycle accident in 1966 and, and after he released John Wesley Harding at the end of 67. And they spent a long time and they just played in the basement of this house. And I think they recorded 140-odd songs, which were officially released a, uh, a couple years ago. But they had no intention to release these songs officially. I believe Columbia Records made an LP of a bunch of the songs to pass around to singers to see if they wanted to cover them, which was common in, in that period. People would record sort of demos and um, they would the singers would get to hear them that way. And this immediately got bootlegged and it turned into a pretty big deal because Dylan was very quiet and out of the limelight at that time. Those sorts of demo recordings were uh, very popular among collectors because, well, there were a limited number of them produced and they usually featured the songwriter uh, maybe performing in less than pristine conditions, you know, simply just sitting in front of a tape recorder and, and demoing the song. Bootleggers would actually collect these demos and issue them on LPs. What are they called? The uh, private recordings? Private recordings, yeah. So they existed in jazz and classical music, and they go back, maybe they go back as far as the 30s and the 40s. And, and they've long been circulated privately to an exclusive audience. I believe that the only live recordings by Charlie Parker are bootlegs. So basically back then you had, this is the 1940s, you had someone with a very, very large tape machine go into a club and put microphones someplace and put them in a place where no one would see them under a table or something. And I guess the jazz musicians didn't even think that they could be recorded. My father belonged to a, I want to say a club, but it's it was more like a loose association of aficionados. And they would collect recordings of jazz artists, you know, traditional jazz, modern jazz, um, that had been recorded in West Coast clubs or had been broadcast locally on the radio. And, and these would be regionally popular acts that perform mostly on the West Coast, and they rarely toured the country. So these recordings would find their way out to other parts of the world. Same with similar acts in Europe and their club recordings. They'd be collected in the U.S. And uh, FM radio broadcasts, they would do live shows frequently from the King Biscuit Flower Hour in the 70s, which I recorded all the time, to, well, the BBC, which airs live music a lot, um, the Chicago Symphony here in the U.S., Metropolitan Opera. Yeah, the, these old classical recordings are often called Recordings of Indeterminate Origins, or ROIOs. And they would come from radio broadcasts or, you know, people up in the, 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 the cheap seats in Carnegie Hall that had microphones. And I, I know for a fact that there are a number of very famous classical artists who were recorded like that. When you go back into the period, you know, the sort of pre, how would we say, the pre-dissemination period, because when you got later, a lot more orchestras that were recording everything and or did FM recordings and all that. So, some of them are actually recorded on in-house monitors. I would say in popular and rock music, there were a number of bootleg recordings that were really important. And the Basement Tapes is obviously one of them, the, that first one. The Beach Boys Smile, which was a, a number of sessions that never got published. The Beatles Get Back Journals, and there were a bunch of bootlegs that came out of the Let It Be sessions that circulated very widely. There was a Velvet Underground live at the end of Cole Avenue in 1969. And the Velvet Underground may not have been the best live band out there, but, you know, when you didn't have a lot of Velvet music, you wanted more. And then there's a very important Rolling Stones bootleg, Liver Than You'll Ever Be, from Oakland Coliseum in November 1969. And this was recorded to be later broadcast on the radio. 
And once that recording got out, it was a really good quality recording. Well, I think the pressings of these bootlegs might not have been great, but the, if, if you had a recording that was this good, you, you certainly had a good chance of selling it. And this was before the Rolling Stones released Get Your Yaya's Out, right? That's right. And before the film Gimme Shelter was out too, the soundtrack of which, for what it was worth, was also bootlegged. There's Jimi Hendrix bootleg from May 1970, Van Morrison, The Who, Who's Zoo, which was a two LP and it, it contained the material from 64 to 1971. A David Bowie concert in 1976 was bootlegged and it goes on and on and on. And, and once you get into the 70s, everything's bootlegged. It could be, again, FM radio broadcasts, which were decent quality back then. Someone would tape them and then they would press them and they'd be bootlegged. The funny thing about a lot of those radio recordings is that the bootlegs would become so popular that it would compel the record company to actually release a legitimate version of it. And one that comes to mind for me is one of my favorite albums. It's an Elton John album called 111770. It was broadcast live on WABC radio, and so many people recorded it and circulated the, the tapes that the record company felt pressure to release it. And they didn't right away because there was already a glut of Elton John's studio stuff on the market. I think there were like three albums that were current at the time. So eventually they did release it as a, as a legitimate album, but for years that was a, a very popular recording. And it happened all the time. I mentioned King Biscuit Flower Hour, which was a syndicated radio program of, of live concerts. And every Saturday night I was there with my cassette recorder recording that stuff. So it, it's been going on for quite a while, and radio recordings was a great way to get uh, get that stuff. So here's something that's interesting. If you record a radio broadcast and it's unscripted in the United States, it's not subject to copyright. So you could technically share that recording with someone else. It's called an air check when you do that. However, if you're not paying copyrights to the songwriters, then you're in violation. But the actual performance itself isn't copyright. And, and I know this because I'm a big fan of Gene Shepard, who did radio shows in the 60s and the 70s. And there are about 1,500 Gene Shepard radio shows that people recorded and have since sort of organized and shared into a big archive and digitized. And there is no copyright on these because they are unscripted. So the, the rules about this can be very can be very vague. Now, you mentioned a, a record company being forced to release a bootleg, and that's the basement tapes. Columbia had to release the basement tapes because so many people were buying the bootleg that they were they saw that they were losing money, and Dylan wasn't releasing anything. Right. Zappa did the same thing. He had a, he had a series of... I remember I used to go into this record store in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and I saw all these Zappa albums that I'd never heard of before, and it turns out they were bootlegs. And eventually... Um, I think it was the Zappa Family Trust, or I don't think Frank was alive at the time, but they put out a series of albums called Beat the Boots. And it was a re-release of all these bootlegs in order to put the bootleggers out of business and recoup some of the monetary uh, loss that uh, the Zappa Family Trust felt that they were, were due, obviously. Yeah, the Zappa Family Trust seems very interested on staunching any sort of monetary loss, even among members of the family. Yeah, tough to take sides. Everyone thinks they're acting in the best interests of Frank's legacy. So the concept of the bootleg actually entered into sort of normal currency. Bob Dylan has released a number of volumes of the bootleg series. And some of these are live recordings, like the Live 1966 set, the title of which is the Royal Albert Hall Concert. And the Royal Albert Hall is in quotes because it was not at the Royal Albert Hall. It was at the Free Trade Hall in Manchester. This is the famous concert where someone yelled out Judas and 
Dylan yelled back, I don't believe you. And it's a very good quality concert. And so there have been 15 or so bootleg series from Dylan. Miles Davis Estate has been releasing a bootleg series as well. Again, live recordings or outtakes. So, so Dylan released live recordings and outtakes and, and things that were circulating. I think I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about playlists that there was a first version of the Blood on the Tracks album, and there are four songs that didn't make it into the final album. Well, they've been available on bootlegs for a long time. So over the years, Dylan released those on different bootleg series um, albums. Yeah, it seems to me that a lot of the time, in order to confound bootleggers, an artist will release not only what was originally bootlegged, but they'll add um, you know, additional contemporaneous tracks or better quality tracks. And this was done in the interest of making the bootlegged product less desirable. Yeah, to out-bootleg the bootleggers. And we've talked a number of times about one of my favorite movies, Almost Famous. Uh, there's a theatrical release of Almost Famous, and there's a director's cut, which is called Untitled, open parentheses, Almost Famous, the bootleg release, because it's all about music, and, you know, it's more of an inside joke than anything. But the term bootleg is extremely common, and, and it's used now as a marketing tool rather than to indicate something that's illegal. Interestingly, I see bootleg recordings all over the place on Amazon here. I haven't checked in, in the U.S. in a while, but copyright laws in Europe cover a performance for 50 years, whereas in the U.S. it's 70 years after the artist's death or something like that. So there are plenty of recordings that are out of copyright here in Europe, and they can be released, but can't be released in the States. So you may be able to buy them here, and if you get them in the States, they're illegal, but Amazon sells these things. They just have tons of them. They don't seem to care about it. I think that's why we used to find bootleg stuff in the import category at the record store, because a lot of this stuff would be imported from either Europe or Asia, Japan, places like that. I have no idea what copyright rules are in, in those parts of the world. So bootlegging goes along with live taping. And since everyone knows that I'm a deadhead, a fan of the Grateful Dead, this is probably the band that legitimized live taping. The Grateful Dead learned early on that they weren't an album band, that they didn't sell albums because their music had to be heard live. And their studio albums were not their best work, which once you get into the 70s, it's not true. Some of their studio albums are among their best recordings. But they, not only did they record their own shows, but they let people tape the shows as well. And they eventually even had what they call the taper section, where you could come and you could set up your microphones. In the early days, some people could go up to the soundboard and plug into it. Using the Grateful Dead as an example, there are a number of different types of live recordings. You have a soundboard, which could be the band's own recordings, usually two-track, or it could be someone patched into the soundboard. You have audience recordings, which is someone sticking a pair of microphones or a stereo microphone up on a stand. And in the Dead concerts in the 70s or, or later, you could see you know, this little forest of mic stands. And then you have matrix recordings where people mix a combination of a soundboard and an audience recording because the soundboard recording is generally flat. You hear all the music, but you don't get any audience reaction, whereas a matrix recording brings some of the audience reaction into it, gives it more space. Also, some of the board recordings wouldn't seem as balanced because they're balancing the, the, the instrumentation for a live hall, and the way you hear it off the board isn't necessarily the way you would you know, want to record it. In fact, some, some recordings, if, if an instrument wasn't mic'd, you wouldn't have it. Like some, in small halls, drums wouldn't be mic'd. It wouldn't be necessary. So you'd get these recordings with, you know, just the, the semblance of drums in the background that were picked up on the other microphone. So the quality could really vary. 
And so it was good that the dead actually allowed it. I mean, one of the other good things is it, it, it discouraged bootleggers from trying to make money off these recordings because the fans were already flooded with all of these recordings that they could trade amongst themselves. Yeah, the Grateful Dead was always very clear that you could tape all the music you want and you can trade it all you want, but you can't sell it. And they did go after a number of people who sold bootlegs. They didn't have much success with it. And I think real deadheads didn't really bother to buy the bootlegs anyway. So the Grateful Dead really started this. And what happened after that is that bands around the Grateful Dead ended up getting taped and traded. And a lot of bands realized that this was a way of, of getting people to know the band. So today, for instance, you can go to archive.org, which is a wonderful place that has all sorts of media, music and movies and, and texts and all that. And you can go to their live music archive where they have, they currently have 170,000 results, uh, one item being a concert, 11,000 from the Grateful Dead. And then you get bands like String Cheese Incident and Moe and Umphreys McGee and Cracker and Keller Williams. And as I go down, John Mayer, and then lots of bands I've never heard of. Don't forget, a lot of these bands are also regional and maybe only have some, you know, limited popularity. So you're bound to run into some things that may seem obscure. So for a long time, the Grateful Dead allowed all of their recordings to be shared on archive.org. And this was until around 2006 when the band decided to pull all the soundboard recordings from archive.org. So now all you can get is audience recordings there. In the past, you could get a couple of thousand soundboard recordings of varying quality. As you say, the soundboard wasn't always extremely well recorded. Uh, an awful lot of them were. The Grateful Dead has, um, over the years, released a number of these live recordings um, as commercial releases, um, you know, hundreds of them, from big box sets to um, their um, Dave's Picks and Dick's Picks series, which are four concerts a year. Is that why they pulled the board recordings from, from archive.com so they could, they could manage it themselves? Yeah, they pulled this around the time that they were connecting with Rhino Records, who released their music for a while. And, and I think the Rhino contract just ended and they've shifted over to Warner or something like that. But when Rhino Records started managing their official releases, their official concert releases, and the reaction to this was pretty negative from Deadheads, who many of them had shared their own recordings to archive.org and found that they were being deleted. I mean, they still had copies, uh, I would assume. But this would, had always been a sort of a community thing where you always knew you could just go and check out a, a recording on archive.org. And all of a sudden, this changed. And there was a lot of acrimony for a while, but then people have sort of chilled out. And you can still find, if you look carefully, um, you can find places where people are trading dozens, hundreds, thousands of Grateful Dead concerts. They're not hard to find if you know Deadheads. The internet makes it a lot easier to distribute this stuff. I mean, back in the day, you used to have to send away for lists and get these badly typewritten catalogs of recordings from dubious sellers. And then you'd send out your blank tape and hope they'd be returned with music on them. Yeah. So when I first got internet access in 1995, one of the first things I did was look up where I could get some Grateful Dead music. Because by then, there had only been a few official concert releases. They hadn't gone into this whole process that they did starting in the 2000s with um, Dick's Picks, which would be four releases a year. And, you know, this is while Jerry Garcia was still alive. So I bought a cassette deck, a two a double cassette deck, a Kenwood, so I could dub cassettes. And I contacted and I found a number of traders on the internet and I contacted them. And I said, would you do a B&P for me? 
BNP stands for blanks and postage. So what you do is you send blank tapes to someone and you send them enough postage so they can send them back. And I got a bunch of people, even here in Europe, who had very low generation tapes. So the, the first generation is the original soundboard or audience tape, and the second generation is a copy made from that. So if you're making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, right, a fourth generation, it doesn't sound as good as the second generation. And I had hundreds of tapes, and for, for several years I did this. And then all of a sudden, the tape trading started shifting to CD. And that was a lot easier. You'd burn a CD and, you know, you wouldn't have any loss in quality. So people would digitize the original tapes and trade them on CD. And then it just all went online. No one even bothered with CDs anymore. But for a number of years, it was a lot of fun because, you know, you'd send out your tapes and you'd wait for something to come back. And then one day you get a package, you get all these tapes. It's like, wow. And you'd put them in your cassette deck and you'd turn up the volume and you'd have a party. Not exactly the Musical Heritage Society, but... Uh pretty inexpensive way to build your music library. So these days, live recordings have become a major element for a lot of bands. Of course, there are bands who aren't that great live and don't sell live recordings um, in any way. But, you know, you look at Bruce Springsteen, you can buy and download recordings of all of his concerts. There are plenty of bands who do this. For a while, there were bands who were actually selling the recordings as you left the show. So they would actually be doing the mix live and they'd get it onto a computer and they'd have a bunch of CD burners set up and you'd wait online and you'd grab your CDs. Bruce Springsteen was selling thumb drives at his shows and that lets you go to uh, go online afterwards and download that show. Yeah, a lot of bands do that where you, you pay for the download in advance and you get it when you get home. It's a lot easier than having people wait online while you're burning CDs, which frankly is a little bit ridiculous. You could just copy to a thumb drive there, or they could copy to a bunch of thumb drives and distribute them, but it's still easier for people to do it when they get home. And there are lots of sites that sell live concerts. Um, Wolfgang's Vault, for instance, has a huge number of concerts. A lot of it comes from Bill Graham's private archives, but there's all sorts of other things. If, if you're a fan of a band, just look them up. And, you know, if they are a band that performs well live, they'll be selling their concerts. A lot of bands don't. So Bob Dylan doesn't sell live concerts at all, other than what's released on CDs. The Stones do occasionally. I believe they've released six or eight live concerts from their entire career as downloads. The, the current incarnation of what's left of the Grateful Dead, which is Dead and Company, you can buy everything they perform. You can get it all if you want. You can buy a whole tour. You can buy an individual show. It's all available. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention that bands like Fish and Pearl Jam, bands of that ilk, also give their fans permission to record and, and circulate shows. I guess we have to mention those bands. Not not a fan of either, but, uh, you know, I can certainly appreciate it. And, and again, Fish, I think, is a good example of a band who really has the same ethos as the Grateful Dead. They're a band that improvises a lot, that's allowed taping from the early days, and, and that built their following. So, you know, when I was young, I knew one guy who had Grateful Dead tapes, Charlie. And Charlie had a bunch of Grateful Dead tapes. And it was like, you'd go to his house and he'd put on a dead tape. It was the coolest thing. There weren't many people back in the 70s who had dead tapes. But when you heard these, it made you think, wow, I want to see this band again live. So unlike bands back then who would perform a concert tour to promote an album, the Grateful Dead wanted to get people to their concerts, which is how they made money. And indirectly, all of these tapes that were circulating got people to understand the sort of Grateful Dead experience and got them to be more interested in getting tickets. And, you know, frankly, 
from the 70s on, from, from the time I first heard The Grateful Dead in 76, and when they came back in 77 from their hiatus, their concerts always sold out very, very quickly. Obviously, I was in New York, but I think pretty much anywhere in the U.S., they sold out relatively quickly. So they their following was not only permanent, but it was increasing in size as they went from small halls, like I first saw them at the Palladium, which is, you know, 2,000, 3,000 seats, and then at Madison Square Garden, and then they were playing in 50,000-seat stadiums. So their following increased in part because of the, what would you call it, the atmosphere, the, the sort of the, the spectacle, the ambience that was shared through these live recordings. Yeah, there's an underground. I think there was a cer- certain sense that it was an underground feel, countercultural feel to it as well. So, And the recordings only enhanced that because it was a super secret kind of private thing. Um, not everybody was into it, and if you were into it, then you were clued in, then you were hip. But as you, you mentioned earlier about King Biscuit Flower Hour and other FM broadcasts, in New York, we'd have a few live broadcasts of the dead on FM radio. They might not always have been full concerts. So I remember the, the um, what was it, uh, September 7, 1977, when the dead played at Englishtown. I'm pretty sure WNEW played that entire concert, and that was a tape that, that was shared all over the place. Lots of people recorded it. So bootleg recordings are an important part of the recording history of an artist in some ways they can be more true because they're not edited there's no overdubs they're not perfect you hear the mistakes you hear what a band sounds like one could say warts and all which is the name of um, Moe's series of live recordings I know a lot of people who really hate live recordings they don't they, they want the clean studio sound so they might never want to have it but in some ways it's the live recording that is really what music is about. And before we wrap this episode up, it is time to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? So since we've been talking about live recordings, I figured that I should pick a live recording as my next track. This is from one of my favorite bands, the Daruti Column. Daruti Column is essentially Vinnie Riley, who's probably one of the great unsung guitarists in the world. He's performed solo, playing all the instruments, and he's performed with a few other musicians, notably with Bruce Mitchell on drums. In the early 1980s, he toured Japan a couple of times, and one of the concerts from 1985 was released on CD. This is the very early day of CD, under the name Domo Arigato, which means thank you very much in Japanese. It was also filmed, and for a while it was available in VHS format. There is a new version of this coming out literally any day now, The first CD has the original mix from 1985. The second and third CDs have a remaster from 2017 plus a previously unreleased concert from 1984. And the fourth disc is a DVD with the video version of the concert. The Daruti Column was never a great live band. Uh, their, Their work was a lot better in the studio. But this was a really, really nice album. It was in this sort of period when Vinnie Riley had a guy named John Metcalf playing viola, and he had this sort of semi-classical sound in the music. So if you've never heard the Daruti Column, I don't know if I've ever picked a Daruti Column album as my next track, but definitely one of my favorite bands. If you've never heard them, this is a good time to check them out. So it's called Domo Arigato, and it's by the Daruti Column, and it should be out very, very soon. What about you, Doug? Have you got anything interesting this week? Well, sort of. Half interesting, as I'll explain in a moment. I'm going to be listening to Side One, of Live Peace in Toronto, 1969, which is a live album of a performance by the Plastic Ono Band at some rock festival in Toronto. 
Um, the Plastic Ono Band being John Lennon and Yoko Ono, of course, along with Eric Clapton, Klaus Vormann, and Alan White. Now, it's notably the first real live album by any Beatle, but it's also an example of recording that was released in order to discourage bootleggers. At least that's why Lennon was anxious to get it released. That, and he also wanted to publicize his uh, pro-peace movement. The band, such as it was, performed eight songs at this festival, seven if you don't count the nearly 13-minute experimental Yoko stuff on side two, which is why I'm not going to listen to it. As Lennon says at the start of this performance, the band was only going to do songs that they knew, and it's fairly obvious that they didn't rehearse very much, if at all. In any case, they managed to do decent pickup versions of Blue Suede Shoes, Money, uh, the debut of Cold Turkey, Your Blues, and Give Peace a Chance. Now, my understanding is that everyone involved was pretty wasted. So uh, it's an interesting artifact in that regard. Surprisingly, the album never charted in the UK, but reached number 10 in the United States, something I didn't know. And in fact, I seem to remember that this version of Cold Turkey got a lot of college airplay before the studio single came out later. Anyway, Live Peace in Toronto, 1969, side one by the Plastic Ono Band is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.